Welcome to Indoctrination, a weekly conversation series about protecting yourself from systems of control. I'm your host, Rachel Bernstein. Hi, everybody. Before I introduce my guest for this week, I just want to mention that last week we had on the show Christopher Buckley, who had been in the KKK, and he talked about how he got swept up into it, how hate became like a drug, and how he was able to have it all unraveled and he could step away and step back kind of into his life and how I think it was always supposed to be without the induction and indoctrination of hatred. What was compelling about his story, among other things, is that it's his wife who planned the intervention to help him kind of come back to his senses. And so because there was an overwhelming interest in that show where people were writing in saying that they found him to be so brave and they found the story to be so compelling and also inspirational, I had a conversation with my team and we decided to reach back out to Christopher and see if he could come on with his wife. and they could tell that part of the story more specifically about what she was noticing she was worried about, worried enough to plan an intervention and who was involved in it and how it was orchestrated, what worked about it, all of it. People were very interested in that part and because of a constraint of time, we didn't get to get into it. But now Chris and his wife have agreed to come back on And so you'll get to hear them in a few weeks talk about that part of the story. It's going to be fascinating to hear about how someone gets kind of pulled out of a situation where they are so heavily influenced and so sure that this is the answer. And today, I am very excited to have Amanda Montel on the show. She is a writer, language scholar, and podcast host from Baltimore originally, now lives in Los Angeles. She's the author of Cultish, The Language of Fanaticism, about the language of cults from Scientology to Soul Cycle. And it's going to be coming out this week by HarperCollins, and we're very excited about it being out in the public. So check it out. As a reporter and an essayist, Amanda's writings have been featured in Marie Claire, Glamour, Cosmopolitan, Nylon, The Rumpus, Birdie, and Who, What, Where, where she formerly served as the Features and Beauty Editor. She holds a degree in linguistics from NYU and now, as I mentioned, lives in Los Angeles with her partner, her plants, and her pets. Here's Amanda now. Welcome to the show, everyone. I have a very special guest on today who is going to be talking about something that I've thought about for many years and I've talked to clients about for many years. And, you know, she's really, really studied it. And so I am so happy to be able to ask her questions about things that 
I've actually been wondering about for a long time. Her name is Amanda Montel, and she is going to spend a little bit of time introducing herself, and then we'll go from there. Hi, Amanda. Hi, thank you so much for having me to talk about my favorite topic, the language of cults. So my name is Amanda. I'm a writer. I have a new book coming out called Cultish, The Language of Fanaticism, coming from HarperCollins on June 15th of this year. I'm also a linguist. My my background is in linguistics. I'm obsessed with language, particularly the, the relationship between how people speak and how they move through the world. You know, this field that's called sociolinguistics. I'm obsessed with the relationships between language and power, language and personality, language and identity. And um, I think I'm in like-minded company here when I say I have always been obsessed with cults. Um, I grew up listening to stories from my dad who spent his teenage years in a notorious cult uh, against his will cult called Synanon. I don't know if you're familiar with it. Very familiar with it. I'm very familiar with a lot of it. Something called The Game, just a lot of very horrible things. Yeah. So I grew up on those stories, but my parents are both prolific research scientists. (laughs) My dad was forced to join Synanon when he was 14. He lived in Manhattan up until that point. His like absentee communist father and his new wife wanted in on like the countercultural movement of the late 60s. So they moved my dad and his two um, toddler age half sisters onto this compound in the Bay Area. And my dad got there and he was like, this is a cult. Because, <laughs> you know, he was a skeptical person. But he, you know, he just sort of spent his time there laying low privately interrogating everything. Technically, you weren't allowed to go to school off of Synanon's grounds. Kids had to go to the Synanon school. That's in scare quotes. But my dad was like, fuck that. I am going to go to an accredited high school so that I can get into college. So he like snuck off the campus every day and headed into San Francisco where he could attend normal high school. He like hitched a ride with someone who worked in the city. Yeah. And and then in Synanon, he found an opportunity with a scientist there to like run the Synanon microbiology lab. So ironically, he was introduced to like laboratory science at Synanon. He would be like culturing people's throats when they thought they might have an infection or like if someone thought they had dysentery, you would like swab their poop. Like what? Really fun teenage stuff. But anyway, I grew up on all those stories. Um, But at the same time, I grew up you know, the daughter of like atheist scientists. I was raised reformed Jewish, but like I just, you know, was fascinated anthropologically by extreme beliefs and fringe groups. And language is the lens through which I see the world. That's why I went on to study linguistics. So writing a book about the language of cults um, felt like a natural thing for me to do. (laughs) Amazing. So good. You know, it's an interesting thing about Synanon because I mean, we can certainly talk about that for a long time, even though I do want to get to language, but I know language, I'm sure, was used a lot in Synanon, especially this thing that a lot of people talk about called the game, which was not at all fun and not at all a game. No, no, not really something you play. (laughs) No, it was very, very, very cruel. And people still have post-traumatic symptoms from those experiences. And... And I remember also Synanon was something that a lot of people talk about who have been in these teen treatment programs where they just talk about kind of being abused and being made to feel like it was for their benefit. But here, you know, the people in charge 
were these sort of sociopathic people who were just, who enjoyed the cruelty of it. So there was no healing, no treatment to be found. In fact, people needed treatment after. Right. Yeah. Of course, the Synanon game was pitched as this very, you know, progressive, edgy form of group therapy um, that was supposed to be very honest and really get to the heart of people's feelings and help them become, you know, self-actualized or whatever, help them become better people. But of course, underneath that, it was just a form of social control. And you can find similar activities in Jonestown. Jim Jones held catharsis meetings or family meetings where similar things would happen. For those who don't know, during a Synanon game, these were these mandatory nightly activities where people would be divided in groups, made to sit in a circle or stand in a circle and um, be subjected to vicious personal criticism by their peers. And again, it was like pitched as this form of group therapy, but sometimes the game could be really like humiliating at best and traumatizing at worst, um, really hostile and aggressive. Even kids had to play this in an on game. And yeah, this is a technique that a lot of cultish leaders will use, um, like Jim Jones, as I mentioned. And there was a really screwball multi-level marketing leader that had his recruits do something similar. And even at Amazon, if we're talking about slightly lesser cults, people, employees are encouraged to, you know, malign one another's ideas, even to the point of humiliation and meetings. So it's something that a lot of power abusive leaders do. Incredible. Yes, incredible. There, there have been a lot of these kinds of weekends, workshops and, you know, uh, empowerment and getting to know you kinds of meetings that, you know, a lot of people uh, during those meetings, they have this very alarming kind of moment where they say something very sick is happening here. And this company, whatever it was, was paid a lot of money for this, which is quite incredible. I know from doing this work, there are a lot of people who will say to me that if they hear a certain word, brings them right back. And they also have trouble especially when they've been raised in a group, that becomes their lingo, that becomes their language, and they work very hard to switch over to a different kind of language. And in fact, there are times that I have said to people when I feel like they're parroting what they've learned and they're trying to let me know that, you know, maybe the group that their parents really don't like that they're in or their spouse, whatever is really fine. And when I ask about it, they give me kind of the party lines and if I say to them sometimes, I actually am not familiar with that language. Can you put it into your own words? They often can't. But there's something so interesting about that. It's like the message hasn't been integrated. It just gets repeated. And I think once sometimes people have to put it in their own language, they get to hear how it doesn't make sense. But it made sense with that phraseology or with those words, I don't know if that's something that you've come across. Oh my gosh, absolutely. So my book is called Cultish because, um, well, it's a double entendre, which as like a wordplay nerd, I really like. Um, in part, it means that all of the groups that I discuss in the book, because I do discuss many groups along the cultish spectrum. So not just the Jonestowns and the Heaven's Gates, but also MLMs and fitness, quote unquote, cult and internet and social media, quote unquote, cults. So um, all these groups, you know, it's disputed whether or not you might classify them all as full-blown cults, but at the very least, you can call them cultish. But also cultish is the name of this cult language that I describe throughout the book, like English or Swedish or Spanish, but cultish. And there are all of these different techniques that cultish leaders from Jim Jones to Jeff Bezos tend to use to 
influence and manipulate their followers. And sometimes cultish language is actually used for good, you know, to assemble people around a collective mission. Um, but sometimes it's it's used for evil. <laughs> and some of the phrases that you're describing remind me of one element of cultish language called the thought terminating cliche. I don't know if this is something you've come across. Oh, yeah. Every day. Uh-huh. Yeah, this is this phrase that some people might know of that was first described by a psychologist named Robert J. Lifton in the early 50s. And it basically refers to a type of stock phrase that's easily memorized and easily repeated that's aimed at discontinuing logic or questioning or further analysis or thought. So in a cultish atmosphere, let's go with synonym. A classic synonym thought terminating cliche would be the phrase act as if so this was an imperative that Synanon followers, higher-ups, diehards would use that essentially meant, um, well, it was a cue not to question any of Synanon's policies or procedures. So if someone had a question or wasn't really sure why something was done a certain way or had a problem or just any doubt, you could say, act as if, which essentially meant, oh, no, you don't need to question this policy. Just act as if you agree with it until you do. That seems like a huge red flag, but it was so incorporated into life in Synanon that it was just sort of this cue like, oh yeah, I disagree with this, act as if. Oh, no, I'm fine. And it sort of lets followers off the hook because it puts an end to cognitive dissonance or that uncomfortable feeling that you have when you hold two conflicting ideas in your mind at the same time. When you when you have that you know really uncomfortable cognitive dissonance, a thought terminating cliche is there to tell you don't worry about it, don't think about it anymore, you're fine. And sometimes you're right; these thought terminating cliches are really irrational, and someone isn't going to be able to translate them into regular English very well. But they they really do work. And thought terminating cliches are not exclusive to cultish groups, they really imbue our everyday lives. You know, thought terminating cliches include phrases like, it is what it is. Boys will be boys. It's all in God's plan. These are these phrases that we use all the time because it's work to think and it's a relief not to have to. And, you know, a phrase like, it is what it is, can be really damaging. Like if a mafia guy says it like, oh, I shot the guy. It is what it is. Or it could be, you know, much more benign than that. But in a, in a cultish power abusive group atmosphere, these thought terminating cliches are like key to uh, manipulating people. You know, it's so nice to be talking to you about this. And yes, I think for people to check out uh, Lifton's work, I mean, he was really one of the pioneers of really being able to study this. He has these eight criteria of what he called brainwashing or mind control, as we call it. And so, yeah, people can check those things out. They're going to understand a lot about cults and about multi-level marketing, about all of it, about controlling relationships also, because it exists within kind of these one-on-one -on -one cults. I also have been studying Heaven's Gate for many, many years, and I did an episode about them, but I remember speaking with a mom who lost her daughter in the group and uh, watching a lot of the the videos that they made before they, you know, died. The exit tapes. <laughs> yes. And what I found so interesting is that none of them talked about death. None of them talked about killing themselves. None of them talked about poison. None of them talked about any of the things that were about to happen. And I feel like if they're just talking about leaving their corporal beings or going to their happier self or going to the mothership or 
living on forever. Yeah, it was um, it was transitioning to the next evolutionary level above human. It was exiting their earthly containers. It was leaving their human flesh suit. Right. And I feel like if you say those things and if they make sense to you, you can smile while you're saying them because there's nothing scary about it. In fact, it's exciting and relieving. And, and I think if someone had said to them, actually, all of that is a way to describe the fact that you're about to die. You're about to actually be poisoned and die. If they had that language, I think they would have had much more of an emotional and physiological response that fit the situation. But they're so disconnected from it. I think because of the language. That's right. Yeah. I mean, euphemisms are another huge part of cultish language. Um, I think they would probably fall under the category of loaded language or buzzwords or euphemisms or English words that are redefined to mean something new in the cultish atmosphere. They're these words that are really emotionally charged that are there to spark fear or grief or dread or jubilation or reverence, really anything. Um, and when uh, a cultish leader loads a word like that, then they can exploit it to steer a follower's behavior, especially after repeating the word so often, which, you know, creates a, a conditioning um, situation or a process of subconsciously learning a behavior in response to a stimulus, which, you know, conditioning isn't necessarily bad, but cultish leaders, they, they condition people with language in a really insidious way. And Heaven's Gate, you know, I'm a 90s kid, and that was probably the first piece of cult news that I remember. And Marshall Applewhite, he concocted like this whole Heaven's Gate vocabulary of niche sci-fi-esque terms to reflect his niche sci-fi-esque credo. You know, there was like this severe regimentation of daily life in that mansion where the Heaven's Gate members all lived and the lingo helped keep things in order. You know, I'm sure you know that like the kitchen was called the neutral lab and the laundry room was the fiber lab and meals were called laboratory experiments. And the group as a whole was the classroom. Followers were students, teachers um, like Marshall Applewhite and Bonnie Nettles, who went by tea and dough. You know, everybody had their own special name. They were known as older members and clinicians. If followers were off doing something outside of the mansion that was out of craft, if they were in the house they shared that was in craft. And um, I talked to the Heaven's Gate scholar Benjamin E. Zeller. I don't know if you're familiar with his work, his work but you know, he told me that like this special talk put the followers in a rhetorical place where they could imagine themselves in the specific world where they wanted to be, you know, like by being conditioned by and marinating in this specific thematic vernacular every day for years, followers began to picture life on that spacecraft drifting toward the kingdom of God like it was doing real religious work. So it was it was really insidious. That is really incredible. And I and I think also just about thinking of your food as uh, laboratory experiments. I told my kids that if they happen to go into the back of the fridge because they left something there about a month ago and it looks like a laboratory experiment, please don't eat it. If it's, if it's green and fuzzy and it wasn't when you put it in the refrigerator, uh, yeah. So that, that's usually not a compliment for food. But um, I think, you know, there's also this idea. I mean, years ago, I heard this cassette tape that lets you know that it was older that someone took of a meeting by Elizabeth Clare Prophet, who ran the Church Universal and Triumphant. And she had this way 
of developing a mantra where everyone in the room, sometimes it was hundreds of people, would repeat it and repeat it faster and faster and faster and faster so that you couldn't make out the words anymore. But from a distance, it sounded almost like bees buzzing. She had kind of a nasal voice and people kind of mimicked her voice, I think, to a certain degree. And you could hear it. It didn't sound human anymore. And it was fascinating because I think people got into a trance-like state because of the repetition. And so I, I wonder just about the brain science around that. I mean, when you're repeating things over and over, uh, either certain sounds or certain words, certain phrases, what does that do to the brain? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, with repetition like of a phrase like neutral lab or fiber lab or act as if, that's just conditioning, you know, which is pretty simple. Pavlov's dog, whatever, like you, you repeat something over and over again, and you can train someone to respond in a certain way to that stimulus. But with things like mantras and speaking in tongues and chanting, there's something different going on. Um, It's really, really interesting. I have a whole part in the book where I talk about this because speaking in tongues is my, oh my God, a fascination from very early on in life. Um, But I remember there was this study out of, I believe, the American Journal of Human Biology, which found that speaking in tongues, also known as glossolalia, was associated with all these stress-reducing symptoms. So when people were speaking in tongues, there was reduced cortisol, there was elevated, oh gosh, what's the name of this particular enzyme? I don't remember, but (laughs) there was uh, an elevated amount of a particular enzyme, which uh, these are two typical signs of stress reduction. It was also found to lower inhibitions and increase self-confidence, which is also a sign of religious chanting too. There was um, a small study out of Hong Kong that found that compared to non-religious chanting and resting states, Buddhist chanting generated brain and heart activity associated with a lack of self-consciousness and feelings of transcendent bliss. I don't know about like that form of chanting that you were mentioning in particular, but you know, something is definitely happening there, especially when you're doing it in a group setting and other sort of brain science studies have found that when people engage in group singing, group chanting, you get those same sort of responses in a vacuum. Like there's nothing technically dangerous about group chanting or speaking in tongues, but in practice, like they definitely have um, a sinister sinister side. Um, There was a scientist in the 70s who was like one of the first psychologists to study speaking in tongues who found that glossolalia, love that word, um, (laughs) seemed to provoke a greater intensity of faith. Um, And this was especially true when a person's first time speaking in tongues occurred right after a period of like intense personal trauma, which was often the case. And so he found that the scientists found that when someone's debut glossolalia experience followed some earth shattering life change, they often formed a sense of dependence on the experience, almost as like a reason for their being. And that that other uh, American Journal of Human Biology study found that glossolalia is basically a form of dissociation or a psychological state in which areas of conscious awareness are separated. And again, like dissociation doesn't have to be dangerous. Obviously, there are very severe forms of dissociated identity disorder, but We all experience dissociation when we say, like, stare at a bonfire and, like, feel as though we're lost in a trance or we're zoned out or whatever. Um, But dissociation can also present as self-deception where, like, appearances and consciousness feel real despite evidence to the contrary. And 
under the pressures of like an ill-intentioned leader speaking in tongues can really like compromise a speaker's ability to untangle this like overwhelming metaphysical experience they seem to be having from the guru's influence. But yeah, no, there's real brain science happening for sure. Real brain science. And, you know, and, and I have, uh, you know, I want to make sure to have you share a, as much as you can. I have lots of questions and I it just one thing popped into my head. I see a lot from people who have been in 12 step programs where they can't get phrases out of their head. And the phrases sometimes are helpful and sometimes they're just random and sometimes they're kind of hallmarky. And it didn't at the moment really feel like they were being heard and understood, but they felt like they were sort of being thrown the phrase that would fit that situation. Oh my God. It's so funny that you say that because the whole inspiration, the moment that I thought of the idea for this book, I want to write a book about the language of cults. I was standing in a graveyard. That's another story. I'm a spooky person with my best friend who had just started going to AA and she was using all the AA buzzwords, um, and they have such an exhaustive roster of like really catchy catchphrases. And she was like, I, yeah, like she was using phrases like halting, you know, like hungry, angry, lonely, and tired. Like I've been halting all day. I caught a resentment at work. Um, I'm trying not to future trip. She was just like using all of these phrases and you're right and some of them were really useful and some of them were like seemed just plain culty and I I found it fascinating because this was like my best friend like my soul mate like three months ago before she started going to AI I mean, I mean AA is a wonderful thing and it's like changed her life and she's sober and all that stuff but it's like three months earlier I could understand what she was saying just if she grunted or snorted and now she was speaking this completely different language and I was like wow, there, there must be something going on here. Like, what is it about language that can change people's lives in this way, um, in this really culty way, for better and for worse? So yeah, that's so funny that you say that, because the whole book idea came to me because of the language of a 12-step program. Right. I mean, and there's some things that are calming, like when you hear, you know, well, you know, one day at a time and this other phrase that a lot of people use, uh, what is it? You're only as sick as your secrets. Compare despair. Like there are some useful ones. <laughs> there are. Yeah. And what's hard for people is when they're kind of done with needing the conditioning, but it's not done with them. And so I'm just wondering what is the sticking power? Cause you know, they'll talk about these phrases being sticky. <laughs> like they can't, they can't get them out of their head. And so I'm wondering why they have such a long standing power over people in that kind of subconscious way. Controlling people's language in order to control their behavior is really such a clever tactic because language is usually the first thing people adopt and the last thing they're willing to let go, right? So like, unlike shaving your head or even changing your clothes or moving to a remote commune, you know, it's seemingly commitment free and fairly harmless. Say you show up to an introductory meeting and the leader, you know, you're kind of skeptical of them, but they invite everyone to join in a chant or a mantra like odds are you do it. It's like it's just a mantra. It's not going to kill me. But over time, the language just sort of infiltrates and language is something that we take for granted because we pick it up so naturally. Like human beings are so accommodating with language, not to mention it's really fun to learn a new special language. It's like 
it's like a code word. It makes you feel special. Um, it makes you feel cool to have access to this new exclusive language that other people don't know. I mean, who didn't love learning pig Latin or gibberish as a child? Like, it really is just fun to learn a new language. But over time, you don't even realize like how in insidiously it will condition you. And especially if everyone around you is using that same language, it just doesn't seem dangerous, especially because we grow up with axioms like sticks and stones will break your bones, but words will never hurt you. You know, we just don't think language is powerful or dangerous or any of those things. But it really is also the last thing we let go. You know, speaking of Heaven's Gate, when I spoke to um, Frank Lifford, who you might be familiar with, he's a Heaven's Gate survivor, 18 years, 20 years after leaving Heaven's Gate and denouncing it, he still refers to Marshall Applewhite and Bonnie Nettles as tea and dough. He still refers to dying as leaving Earth. You know, like these terms are deeply embedded. That just speaks to language's invisible power. Wow, it's so interesting. And, you know, I'm thinking also, there have been a lot of studies also about twins who develop their own language, which is fascinating to me. I always wanted to be a twin with my own language. Like, do you remember that movie from the 90s, that kind of weird Jodie Foster movie, Nell? Oh, yeah. <laughs> I oh my god I must have been like a really weird kid because I was like eight years old and I loved the movie Nell because I was just like I want a secret language in the woods and like I don't want anyone to be able to understand me oh yeah and that people speak Vulcan you know just because they they picked up the language and you know all of it right I was Star Trek nerd speaking about nerdy so was Marshall Applewhite. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Okay. That might be the only thing we had in common. <laughs> so I think also there's this idea too, if you've ever been somewhere abroad, you know, where you, your language is not the language spoken in that space and someone else around you, you hear them speaking English, you can connect with them immediately and feel like somehow you have something in common you know, there's this comfort. And if you would come across them, let's say closer to home, you might not like them at all. You might not connect with them at all. But I think this, this idea of he speaks my language is this kind of immediate connective tissue. Totally. It, you know, the language, there was a sociologist named Eileen Barker, who I spoke to, who said that the language creates a culture of shared understanding. And that can be a really beautiful thing. Um, and I tend to think it's a really beautiful thing, but in the wrong hands, it can be dangerous too. Um, but yeah, I mean, the these language communities feel really safe even when they're not. <laughs> right. They're not. No. And Eileen Barker is an interesting person. She, yeah, she's very, very bright. And I also like I've spoken with her and I've seen her at conferences, and sometimes her language can be a little salty, which I kind of appreciate right i know i like that too that that british saltiness <laughs> mm -hmm, mm -hmm. i love it you know there there's all having nothing to do with this sort of but it has to do with language um when things sort of get embedded in your memory as real i was doing some ancestry searching and i was looking for a relative i was trying to remember the last names of relatives and i i remember someone who's who i thought their last name was Blesser. So I was looking up on Ancestry, the Blesser family. I couldn't find anything or no one who was close to anyone that I knew. So I called my mom and I said, I'm looking up to see sort of the Blesser family and where they came from. And she said, who's that? I said, those are our relatives. And she said, what? And I said, no, remember, I grew up hearing about 
Norma Blesser. And she said, oh, she said, no, this is from our relatives, like from Eastern Europe when they were learning English. Norma is someone who had a lot of health issues. And so whenever they said her name, they said, Norma, bless her. <laughs> and that got embedded in my head as a last name. That's so funny. And to this day, and my mom doesn't even know what her actual last name was, but it was just, yeah, everyone felt bad for her. Oh my God, that really reminds me. Um, this is apropos of like probably nothing, but do you follow the, I don't even know if you have Instagram, but if you do, do you follow the account, The Language Nerds? I need to, I haven't. <laughs> you need to. It's it's an accumulation of many like dad joke puns, essentially, that any language nerd will like totally get a kick out of and that bless her bless her um squabble reminds me of of the account i highly recommend it for anyone listening as well you should totally follow the language nerds on instagram i have no affiliation with them other than i am a i'm a devoted follower of that cult <laughs> <laughs> so i have to i have to just check that out so i'm i'm curious yes i want to be able to talk about how people undo the process of that kind of conditioned phraseology and languaging and also what are some of the examples you've already given some of them of sort of the most interesting words and phrases you've come across and you also gave out a little like delicious tidbit when you talked about Jeff Bezos and so I want you to be able to come back to that so take this wherever you would like to take it you know we as humans have a lot of ingrained reasoning flaws like confirmation bias we tend not to seek information that contradicts what we already believe. We tend to not even remember it if we do come across it. Um, so I think in general, for someone who's coming out of a cultish situation or just living their everyday pseudo-cultish, semi-cultish life, to just like seek out information that maybe isn't exactly what you already agree with, to surround yourself by people who aren't just creating this echo chamber for you, um, reflecting you or a more extreme version of you back at you, you know? And I think that's especially hard when we're all on social media so much and dealing with algorithms whose entire job is to feed us what we already want to see or more extreme versions of what we already want to see. But, you know, no matter what situation you're in or coming out of, just to be able to expose yourself to other texts and other ideas and other ways of articulating the world, that's just so important. Very important. And I think about people who I work with who have been involved in cultic groups or, you know, were raised on compounds or who were in abusive relationships or households growing up. Sometimes, you know, people will say to them, you know, how did you, how did you handle enduring all of that abuse? Sometimes they'll look really quizzically at the person because they didn't know that was abuse. It was called so many other things. And it was, this is how I show you I care, or this is God's love, or this is to help you stay pure, or this is, you know, what you deserve. So when you don't have the language that sort of translates into how we use it, then I think people don't always know what happened to them and also why it had the impact it had on them. If they knew they had been abused and that was defined, then I think they would understand why they flinch when someone gets close to them, but otherwise they might not. Yeah, absolutely. I don't know if you're familiar with the concept of like epistemic injustice at all. This harkens back to more of like my feminist studies, but well, let me break this down. So 
when there is no language or no label to describe an experience, sometimes it becomes really delegitimized or not even recognized at all in the ears and eyes of, of, of other listeners and speakers. So, for example, like before there was the word domestic violence or intimate partner violence or homophobia, like these words have really only been around since the 70s. Before these words existed, those abuses were not seen as real by the government, law enforcement, the culture at large, etc. So yeah, if you grow up in an environment where there is no language to describe the grievances or the abuses that you're experiencing, you can feel like pretty gaslit. Like, oh, I, you know, this feels awful, but there's no label for this. So I guess I'm the crazy one. But I did talk to, like, speaking of abusing people and passing it off as, like, special treatment or, like, God's love or whatever, I spoke to a really interesting source for the book, um, this woman, Floor Edwards, who has written a memoir called Apocalypse Child. She's a survivor of the Children of God. That's where she spent her childhood, mostly living in Southeast Asia because David Berg, the manic founder of the Children of God thought that like the Western world would be the first to succumb to the hellfire or the rapture or whatever. So in the 80s, he had everyone move to developing countries. And she was an interesting source because she was someone who, well, what I'll say is this, like, there are so many myths surrounding the type of person who's most likely to wind up in a cult or cultish group. You know, we tend to think those people are desperate or naive or intellectually deficient or something awful like that. But really, and I'm sure you found this too, a lot of those people who join voluntarily, that is, are really bright. And if anything, their biggest fault is excess optimism. You know, they have too much idealism. They are so willing to believe that this person, this group, this ideology is going to heal the world and their life. They're actually not desperate at all. Like Stephen Hassan told me that it required so much bandwidth and so many resources to recruit a new Mooney. Why would they waste their time and money on someone who's liable to break down quickly? But just because it's true that you don't have to be like stupid or desperate to wind up in a cultish group, that doesn't mean that just anyone can wind up in a cultish group or that just anyone who grows up in a cultish group would stick around until adulthood. And Floor Edwards was proof of this because from early childhood, the children of God and language like flirty fishing and whatever, like that was this really disgusting practice where women, including, you know, underage girls were supposed to lure men into the group with sex. You know, even though she grew up with language like that, she still knew something was wrong. Like she still felt this hypocrisy when, you know, people would say one thing and do another or when people would label something really innocently, but it didn't feel innocent or when her siblings at the age of like one years old would get punished for something like she knew in her gut that something was wrong. And so she didn't stick around. Well, luckily her family left, but the same goes for for my dad, you know, like there were a lot of people, friends of my dad in Sinanon who were his age, who showed up and looked around and were like, this place is bullshit. But over the years, like the conditioning, it, you know, it kind of worked. Like it kind of got them because that stuff is really compelling and really hard to resist. But my dad did anyway, and that he resisted, that is anyway. And that is in part because of kind of what we were saying earlier, 
him going to a regular school every day and having access to outside information, outside education, outside world. So, you know, language can do a lot to to isolate people in the same way that a remote commune in the woods can isolate people. But it's never too late to resist it. Yes. And so uh, it's so interesting. And yes, and people can study the children of God if they can stomach it. It's been around for a long time. That was one of my first clients in the, I think, the late 80s, early 90s, a, a woman whose name was also Rachel, who was in her 30s and already had eight children and had lived in slums and on the street and in tents by the highway, wherever, in all these different countries. And I don't know how she made it through and her kids made it through. What I've noticed also in some of these places, a lot of these places, again, going back to this idea of abusive households and then going all the way to cultic groups, I found that kids especially, and also adults, but kids especially were uh, insulted for being kids, for just doing things that were what you did, like that you spilled things or you tripped over yourself or you whatever, you couldn't focus and you couldn't sit for eight hours in a meeting. So a lot of these people still have in their heads that they're clumsy, they're lazy, they're stupid. It was so ingrained and it was just that they were diagnosed for being human and what was natural developmentally at that stage. And so they still have this kind of negative sense of themselves um, being misdiagnosed. And I also think about the subtle way language is used when people are being introduced. I remember being aware of this when I had kids that I would notice that when people would introduce me to their son, it was, you know, and here's my son and he's so smart, you know, and here's my beautiful daughter. And I thought, mm, okay, mm, yeah, no, I'm gonna, I made a mental note. Okay, do not do that uh, because then they get the message. That's what's important. And that's what people are going to be noticing about them or only, or that's what the parents think are the most important things about them. Totally. I mean, that's so interesting that you bring that up because my first book is about the relationship between language, gender, and power. And then my second book is about, you know, language, power, and cults. (laughs) So I obviously, this is my obsession. But yes, no, I have found that too. Like in Scientology, people are explicitly told that children are just adults in little bodies. And you asked before about like, what's some of the wackiest language that I've come across in my studies and the stuff that Scientology does with language like really stands out. I mean, L. Ron Hubbard was just Speaking of sci-fi nerds, he was like the ultimate sci-fi nerd who went way too far, you know, like he really just should have stuck to the novels and space fantasy stories. But instead, he had to go and create a whole religion anyway. Yeah, no, he created so many texts and exhaustive dictionaries full of English words redefined to mean something specific in Scientology. He fancied himself like a scientist, you know, and so he took so many different words from Um, technical fields like software engineering and math and linguistics and twisted them to mean something new in Scientology. And by far the most dizzying thing um, that the Scientologists would have their followers do was this process called word clearing. I don't know how, yeah, I'm sure you're familiar with that, but basically... followers would, you know, be in a session that were they were paying a whole bunch of money for and they would have to, um, you know, whip out a Scientology approved dictionary and go through it and prove that they understood every word in English perfectly according to Scientology doctrine. And if they misunderstood a word, if they had an MU, a misunderstood word, um, as they were called, then they had to 
quote unquote, clear it and demonstrating that you had misunderstood a word might be, you know, questioning it, certainly. But even just like yawning while you were reading the text that you would, you know, might be reading like a Scientology lesson or something like that. And if you had uh, misunderstood the word, say you yawned at it or something like that, then you would have to whip out a dictionary, look it up and prove that you understood the word. And if you came across a word in that words dictionary entry that you didn't understand, then you had to clear that word. And that might send you down this dreaded process called a word chain. And if you still couldn't clear the word, you had to like diagram it out with Play-Doh. Like it was just disorienting beyond all belief and expensive. And it was really something that would force followers just to agree with everything because questioning anything was met with punishment oh, you're questioning this word, you're questioning this idea, we're going to send you down a word chain, we're going to make you feel crazy. So at a point when you have money on the line and time on the line and your sanity on the line, you're just going to be like, screw it, go with it, agree with it. So yeah, the Scientology word clearing is is <laughs> holds a special place in hell, I think. <laughs> a special place in hell. You know, and there is Scientology dictionary, I have it in my office, it's huge. And, you know, I've often thought about this idea that people had to study it, people had to get it right. And you're right, if they yawned, if they looked away, if they whatever, then basically kind of had to start all over again. I think about the grandiosity in that, that if if someone writes something and they make up words and they have the sense that they're so incredibly important, each one, each acronym and each word, each phrase, each article, each preposition. Right, exactly. That people have to study for hours and on, on end I just think about the ego that would propel someone, you know, like L. Ron Hubbard to, to think that every word that came out of his mouth or came out of his head was like as important as deciphering the Dead Sea Scrolls. For sure. Oh, my God. Yeah, there was there's a whole Scientology course called Key to Life, which, oh, my God, speaking of grandiosity, what a ridiculous name. But Key to Life involves just clearing all of the tiny words, the, those prepositions and conjunctions or whatever. And if you've passed key to life, it's considered like very prestigious and admirable just because you've sunk so much tedium into Scientology. Oh, tedium is such a good word. It's so much about that. Under the guise of it being sort of important for the world and the planet and billions of years. Right. Mm -hmm. So I wish we had seven more hours to talk. Um, and so because we only have a few minutes to take us into the present now with big business, with Amazon, with the language that's around us that we, and we don't realize the conditioning and the phrases that are being used that people are just dealing with in the companies that they work in. So let us know a little bit about that. Oh yeah. Well, I'm obsessed with cultish corporate jargon. Um, I, <laughs> I, I uh, didn't succeed very well in an office environment just because I was like so overly kind of maybe a little overtly that must have been my youthful hubris uh, resistant to any type of conformity, even if it was just responsible to like behave yourself. I um yeah, I'm like allergic to corporate bullshit language. But, you know, corporate BS generators are easy to find online and fun to play with, you know, like rapidiously orchid orchestrating market-driven mindshare, you know, like phrases like that. For the book, I um, I have a, a small section about like cultish corporate language. It's in the multi-level marketing part of the book because my book um, starts with talking about the most notorious destructive cults and then works its way into talking about the more on the fence type of cults and finally ending with like 
fitness cults, wellness cults, social media cults. Yeah, I have a multi-level marketing part of the book. And in it, I talk about cultish corporations and their jargon. And I talk to this um, this business scholar guy whose job is to like travel the world and go into big corporations and tell them, you know, why their management styles are messed up, culty, whatever. And he'll find often that, well, first of all, CEOs, I think like one in five of them are are found to have psychopathic tendencies. So like you can't always trust that your CEO is coming up with uh, language standards that are the most fair or compassionate. And yeah, we talked about Jeff Bezos before, and he's a great example of this. Speaking of like ego, uh, he came up with his own Amazon version of the Ten Commandments called the Leadership Principles. And there are these like 13 principles that all have a sort of like vague platitude as their title, like have grit and stuff like that. And when an Amazon employee is hired, they have to memorize them and recite them. And if they're able to recite them perfectly, then they get a symbolic linguistic award, the permission to proclaim I'm peculiar, um, which is just like so culty and weird. And anyway, yeah, when it comes to like corporate culty corporate language, which evolves through the years as our culture evolves, you know, in the 80s, it kind of reeked of the stock exchange words like leverage and buy-in. And in the 90s, we got internet and, and digital technology metaphors like ping me and taking things online and offline. And now um, we with like the lack of work home or what is it? The lack of like work home separation and performative movements toward diversity and inclusion. We have all these sort of new agey sounding corporate terms like holistic and actualize. So the the cultish corporate jargon that you find um, really reflects the culture at the time. And that's always true with language. But I've found that a lot of the time higher ups will like institutionalize their madness or whatever and create this echo chamber where everybody is just supposed to talk exactly like them, whether they understand what they're really saying or not. And I found that working in like creative corporate, like digital media, um, people would use just like so many acronyms and like bullshit, weird, like nouns turned into verbs and vice versa, like euphemisms all over the place. And sometimes you could tell that they did not know what they were saying, but they were conforming because they knew that doing so would grant them access to opportunities, promotions, etc. And so, yeah, I mean, language can really just be a way to enforce conformity. And that can be really damaging in a workplace atmosphere because you can end up exploiting people when they're not allowed to express skepticism or ask questions um, if they're just supposed to use the language. And if they don't, they're like clocked as an outsider and a rebel and they don't get the same opportunities. That can be, um, you know, a red flag. So, yeah, I mean, it's just generally a good idea to have a little like twinkle in the back of your brain that's like, hmm, why do we say this? Like, what does this mean? And it should be okay to ask those questions. And, you know, Stephen Hassan told me this in, in, in the context of religions, but I think it applies everywhere. Like anything legitimate will stand up to scrutiny. It should be okay to express your skepticism or at least ask questions at every point throughout your membership or employment or whatever it is. And if you're met with thought terminating cliches or gaslighting or, you know, loaded language or whatever, then it might be a, a clue that you're in an environment that's a little too cultish for comfort. <laughs> too cultish for comfort. I love that. That is what I deal with all day long. Um, okay. So I know we need to finish up. I was just, I was remembering also just the language even if it's innocuous, just that it's so specific 
to certain fields and, and also certain moments in time because the language is changing so quickly. I just remember things being considered cool. And then, you know, it was cool, but it was five minutes ago that it was cool. So you, you know, you missed, you missed the window on that being cool. It's now, and I remember talking to the uh, production company one time with somebody who was running the meeting. And then I was on the call with also someone who is not an English speaker by birth. And he contacted me afterwards and he said, I wrote down the last phrase because I didn't understand it. Is it English? And he sent me this. He said, she said, PM me so we can hop on a call to get on the same page and circle back. <laughs> that is hilarious. You know, you're reminding me that of the other thing that this um, like exclusive language and buzzwords can do, which is create an us and a them. And that's very culty in and of itself. You know, you're creating, you're manufacturing this sense of superiority in your employees just for knowing this language and for being able to use it. And I want to point out that there is a difference between like lexico, like specialized jargon in a given field that's there to make communication easier. You know, it's there to be more specific. Like, for example, my parents are scientists and when they talk at the dinner table, I don't know what the hell they're saying, but that's only because like the specialized jargon is there for a really logical reason. Like they need it in order to communicate more efficiently. But cultish jargon is there to make to obscure communication, to obscure meanings, to make it more difficult, because it's not really about the words themselves. It's about creating this us and them, about um, enforcing this conformity. It's like not really about what you're saying. <laughs> yes. And, and I think ego is so much a part of it. If I had the ego need to have people parrot back to me what I said as being ultimately important or even just making sense, you know, if I just said, you know, bananas are the key to our future. And I had, you know, lots of people saying that I would laugh first of all, before I let that come out of my mouth, but to, to know that some people just need to know that people are going to be sounding like them and are going to pretend to get it just to please the person who's saying it. I mean, just to think about the neediness, you know, that is, that drives so much of this. It has been a pleasure. I really love talking to you about this and how much you've studied it and how many people you've talked to and also coming out of your father's experience. I mean, I think it's a really wonderful and beautiful way to honor his experiences too. Yeah, I think that too. My dad like just read the book for the first time because like we just had galleys printed and um and that was like such a cool moment because he's he's in it and I dedicated the whole book to him and um, so yeah, it was, it was cool. It was very like full circle. Cause I got to talk to so many people I hadn't spoken to in a really long time for this book, in addition to experts. And I just thought it was interesting, like leave it to the oddly universal subject of cults to like bring me back to all these people from my life. I love it. I hope we get to talk again. And as my, my kids say, when they combine words, it was amazing to talk to you. Well, as a fan of portmanteaus, um, I appreciate that and also found this amazing. <laughs> Good. <laughs> I'm so glad. So hopefully to be continued and lovely to get to know you. And where can people find your work and be in touch if they wanted to be in touch? 
Well, you can order or pre-order my book whenever this is coming out. Um, it's, uh, it's you know, coming out on June 15th, 2021. You can find it wherever books are sold. It's called Cultish, the Language of Fanaticism. And then if you want to keep up with me, you can follow me on Instagram. That's my one social media at Amanda underscore Montel with two L's, where I post a lot of fun, culty, languagey content. Wonderful. You know, I like the way you talk about it, that it's light, it's ironic, it's kind of silly, and it's also just completely dangerous. And, you know, language can be such a snake in the grass. And it's such a good thing to know what to watch out for. So thank you so much for your time. And I hope we get to talk again. Me too. Thank you. You're welcome. One more thing before you go. Thank you so much to Amanda. It was great to speak with her. It's great to talk to people who have an interest in the things that I have an interest in. And it's great to be able to share what I've learned. She can share what she's learned. And I think it is important to be able to understand so much uh, how we are influenced by language in all of its obviousness or all of its subtlety and all of its manipulation. I want to talk more about this idea of thought-terminating cliches. So a thought-terminating cliche, as we talked about a little on the show, is a saying. It's one that's often repeated in order to relieve the stress of cognitive dissonance, something that just doesn't come together in our minds. And it helps us avoid all kind of consideration in the matter. We put it behind us. We don't even sometimes, if the thought terminating cliche is compelling and does its job, we don't have that kind of emotional or conscientious hangover where we know that we were kind of pushed to do something we didn't want to do or we were pushed to buy something when we had doubts and those kinds of hangovers. And we don't feel as conflicted anymore because we were able to have a thought terminating cliche surround it and wrap it up with a bow. And so, everyday examples of thought-terminating cliches are things like, it is what it is, and you got to do what you got to do. We come across them all day long. It was first described in 1963 by Robert J. Lifton, who studied American service members who had exhibited drastic ideological change after being held as prisoners of war by the Chinese government. If you haven't already studied Robert J. Lifton, I do suggest it. It is sort of mandatory information and background for people in my field. And here's a quote from Robert J. Lifton. The language of the totalist environment is characterized by the thought-terminating cliché. The most far-reaching and complex of human problems are compressed into brief, highly reductive, definitive-sounding phrases, easily memorized and easily expressed. And interestingly, actually, the concept of thought-terminating cliché was preceded by the related concept of ultimate term, T-E-R-M, originally published in Richard Weaver's 1953 book, The Ethics of Rhetoric. How I wish today, especially, there 
was an actual ethics brought down or mm, watching over rhetoric of all kinds. Thought-terminating cliches are an important aspect of mind control as used by cults. So, for example, in the Unification Church, they use a lot of cliches. One of them is, you think too much. And that, my friends, scares me. When someone tells you to turn off your critical thinking, when someone tells you to turn off your mind, like somehow it's getting in your way, that's when you want to head for the door. Because they're taking away your ability to question, to have your own ideas, and then to be able to follow them. There are some thought-terminating cliches that help people not feel conflicted in every way, including spiritually. So if, for example, you learn a particular theology, but then something happens in your life, events happen, or there are facts that are revealed that don't match the theology, then very often you hear a religious leader saying, the Lord works in mysterious ways. That is a very clever catch-all phrase, sort of throws a wide net around everything and makes it all still part of God's plan. The other one that really gets people to do things before they're ready is you never know until you try. And then you might kind of ignore that you're putting yourself at risk or that this would be a tremendous waste of time or resources. Also, if you've ever been in a store where something seems to be kind of shoddy about the whatever it is that you're going to be buying and you ask questions of the person who is selling whatever it is. And their response to all your questions is, if you don't like it, don't buy it. That's also not the answer to your questions. So make sure that when you hear something like that, know that that person is avoiding giving you the information you need so you can make a fully educated and smart decision about buying something or buying into something. The other one that usually really gets under my skin is the idea of the ends justify the means. And very often in these situations, that means that the means are going to be destructive and dangerous and be done with abandon and are going to be potentially harmful. But it's all seen as part of, and this is another thought terminating cliche, for the greater good. It's all for the greater good. So the ends justify the means, and it's all for the greater good. That's also a potentially very dangerous situation. So when you're offered these thought-terminating cliches, it's a good idea to take a moment and step back and wonder if that phrase is compelling you to do something or to think a new way or a different way without you being able to really think about it clearly. And It might be said by someone who's very charismatic and kind of says it in this all-knowing way, like, come on, and you might feel foolish or judged for hesitating, for not wanting to buy into something as quickly as they want you to buy into it. But repeat the phrase to yourself without the charismatic delivery and without the social pressure around you of people saying, come on, let's get going. Come on, aren't you going to sign up for this thing? Everyone's waiting for you. That's what happens a lot of times when people want to get other people to sign up for something. They do it in a social environment where they're best peer pressured into it. 
And so without the peer pressure, without the people around, repeat the phrase to you and see if it makes any sense and see if it gives you enough information and see if maybe it's just a manipulation to disarm you. You want to make sure to remember that thought terminating cliches are handicapping. They blind people. So don't let slick and clever, shrewd and charismatic salespeople have the power to get in the way of your logical mind. You want to make sure to stay safe. And I'm going to end with a few of those thought terminating cliches, just in case you needed more examples. One day at a time, life isn't fair. And the phrase that most parents say to their kids, because I said so. And lastly, all's well that ends well. Talk to you next week. Coming this summer to a screen near you. The International Cultic Studies Association is conducting its 2021 annual international conference jointly with Infosec, InfoCult of Montreal and the Association Québécoise Plaidoyer Victime, July 1st through 3rd. 2021. ICSA's annual conference draws former group members, families, helping professionals, researchers, lawyers, educators, and the general public from around the world. This year's event will have four simultaneous tracks, including one in French, and workshops available. Selected sessions will also be translated in French and English. There will be over 50 presentations to choose from. Miss a session? Not a problem. This will be the first conference where almost all of the presentations will be available to registrants for up to 30 days after the event. This year's event includes some familiar faces and some first-time presenters at an ICSA conference. We are also excited to feature a number of French speakers some of the presentations include Alice's Mushrooms, A Culture and QAnon, Insights After Hundreds of Cult Member Interventions Since 1980 by Joseph Zimhart, Scientology's Legal System by Phil Lord, Lived Experiences of Lesbian, Gay, and Bisexual Former Cult Members, Counseling Implications by Cindy Matthews, and many, many more subjects. This conference will also feature the Phoenix Project. Free and open to all, this program reveals the realities of an individual's cult experience through creative works of art, writing, and performance. The cost for the conference in US dollars. For regular registration, 150. For student registration, 80. And financial assistance is available. To sign up for our upcoming ICSA International Conference, The Phoenix Project, and more, visit icsahome.com slash events slash conference annual. We hope to see you at the event. Thank you very much for listening. Please support Indoctrination on Patreon at patreon.com slash indoctrination. Be sure to give us a follow on our social media 
Find us on Facebook and Instagram using at Indoctrination Podcast. And for Twitter, find us at at underscore Indoctrination. We love hearing from you too. So send us an email at indoctrinationshow at gmail.com. And for more updates on the show, visit our website at www.podpage.com forward slash indoctrination.